Dude, I am honored to be here, and Daniel is too kind. Um, I want to tell you first and foremost, yes, I am from Sam Houston Chi Alpha, my wife and I, um, up in Huntsville. But ultimately, um, man, it everything that we have seen is because of the Lord. It's because Jesus is good. And... Um, and we are just, I, I always joked, I said, we're just some scrubs. I don't even know if that word is used anymore. Scrubs. I'm so irrelevant because I've been in Cairo for seven years. Um, no, I, we're just, we were just some, some kids in Chi Alpha whenever we first got there, right? And all the missionaries that came and spoke and shared about cities like that, about God, what God was doing in those cities um, in the Arab world. Yeah, you can play through the video if it... You could just yeah, just play it for a minute, um, so they can see what what that city is like, and what our family, where we live, and what it looks like. They would talk about these cities and these peoples, and it would break our hearts. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I had no intentions of going into missions when I graduated from college, but the Lord, He has plans, and I want to tell you guys that He has plans for your lives. And you don't know if if you follow Him, you choose to follow Him. You choose to walk with him and say yes to him. He will take you places that are incredible. Some are difficult, but there will be joy. And, and you know, we are, like, like Daniel said, we are, uh, we're in Egypt. We're in Cairo. We have been there seven years. We are with Live Dead. Anybody ever heard of Live Dead? Sweet. Some of you have been over. Patty's been over there. Um, and we, what Live Dead focuses on, and that's a scary name, especially when you tell your parents you're going to go Live Dead in Cairo, um, but what it focuses on is a death to self. I'm going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But before I go into that, I want you guys to know that Jesus, like in the second song we sang tonight, Jesus is glorious. There is no one like him. If you do not have a relationship yet with Jesus, or maybe you just started, like, I just want you to know that he is glorious. He stands alone, okay? He is like no one else, and he is amazing. So before we get into the message, just know that as I get into what I'm going to say. Um, the Lord gave me a word for you guys. I, I feel like it's for anyone, but it is not an easy word. So know that Jesus is glorious. So God wants you dead. God wants you dead. And when I say that God wants you dead, the most definite definition of dead, according to Webster's Dictionary, there's many different ways that the word dead can be used in the English language. We all use it for many different things, but first and foremost, it means being no longer alive, right? Wow, we all know that definition. Um, other ways that we might use this word, we can use it to explain the loss of sensation, numbness, lacking emotion, right? Your phone is dead even, right? Lacking sympathy, lacking sensitivity, or even excitement or activity. That thing is dead. Uh, oh, the dog is dead. It's not moving. That doesn't mean it's dead, right? Um, but when I say God wants you dead, I mean that fullest meaning. The first one I told you, no longer alive. Humanity was commanded to refrain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Story of Genesis, Adam and Eve, right? 
when in the garden of the Eden, God said, do not eat from this tree. And he said, he promised, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The book of Romans, book, uh, chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death, right? They ate from that tree of which they were not supposed to, and the wages of sin is death. Here's the bad news, everybody. You have fallen short. You have sinned. You have disobeyed. I have done those things as well. We all have. Because of this, according to God's plan, his purpose, and his promise, he wants us dead. <laughs> and here's the thing. He will get what he wants one way or the other. The question becomes, will you wait until the end of your days to die, or will you choose to die now? Now, that sounds really harsh. It's also why I premised it with the fact that I know God is glorious and Jesus has stood apart. You know, our loving God, who sent his son to die for the whole world, to take away our sins, he actually wants us dead? What does that even mean? I want to tell you that it's actually true. I'm not speaking against what the Bible teaches. I'm not blaspheming. But although this seems like bad news, there is good news that follows. The good news is that although God wants us dead, he has made a way for life in us to be resurrected, to come back from the dead, a way for our addictions, twisted motives, greed, our pride to be put to death forever, and for us to continue living in this world with his help. And we live on the hope of his promises. Okay? So I read the first part of that verse in Romans. Verse 23, chapter, uh, chapter it continues. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I will read that all together again. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So if we will choose to die, to lay down our lives, that means our preferences, our opinions, our talents even, our strengths. If we will lay that all down and live our life for Christ, we have the promise of a resurrection from our life and body of death. We can live eternally now and forevermore. That is the promise of God. We don't have to stay dead. Now, God doesn't want us to simply carry on through life, lacking emotion, sympathy, or sensitivity. That's not what I mean. He doesn't want you to live dead that way, right? He, he doesn't want us to feel numb. He doesn't want us to have a loss of sensation. No, he wants just the opposite. He wants you to experience life to the fullest of his purpose, to feel alive, to have sympathy, compassion, and love for all of those that are around us. That's the purpose of God. That's who Jesus is. And the only way for this to truly happen in your life and in mine is if we determine to allow ourselves to die 
daily, our old life to die, put it to death every day, and be filled with the Spirit and the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Read that one more time because it's good. (laughs) Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. You see, God's plan of redemption for the world involves his vessels, you and I. If we're dead, but we become resurrected to life in Christ, we are now his vessels. We are supposed to be emptied out to the point of death and to be refilled with his spirit for his purpose, his strength. And we will see life spring up from the hard soil in this world, the hard soil of the nations, the hard soil of the unreached, the ends of the earth. You see, technology and globalization, they're increasing rapidly. Everyone knows that. We all see it. We have little supercomputers in our, in our pockets, right? And even though millions of people who live without running water, proper medical care, or even food on their tables, they don't have that, they somehow manage to have a cell phone and a Facebook account, right? They're like standing in a field in Africa with no pants on, but they're surfing Facebook. For real, I've seen it. It's real. Now, despite our ability to connect on a global scale, which... Facebook is a global scale. There's still so many people that don't have access to this gospel. The gospel of Jesus. These people are what we call unreached peoples. Anybody ever heard of unreached peoples? Amen, I'm glad you've heard. Um, They are people that have no access to churches, no access to Christians. There's no people that know Jesus living amongst them, no churches no even Christian radio or television, for them to find out about who he is in their language. Many of them don't even have a Bible in their language. So even if they wanted to know about other religious options to find a Savior, how would they find that? How would they know about him? What name would they put in Google or Facebook when they've never heard the name? 29% of the world 29% of the world currently is unreached. How? How are 29%? Now, 7 billion, 29% of 7 billion do not have access to the gospel. And only 3% of all missionaries sent overseas are going to these nations. That means that 97% of all cross-cultural missionaries are going to work amongst peoples and places where there are churches where there are Bibles, where there's Christian radio and television. And there's the Bible in their language. The task is great, 29%. And Jesus promised us in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end. What does that mean? The end where Jesus returns, that's the promise. He would return 
to this earth to right all the wrongs, to set things right. That is our eternal hope. That's our promise that we, we look forward to, that Jesus would come and be king again in the flesh, set things right. So as Christians, our, our ultimate two goals in life are to know Jesus and to make him known, right? To know him more and more every day and to make him known. Now, the furthest depth of knowing Jesus will happen when he returns and rights all those wrongs, right? We'll know him better than ever before because we'll be made perfect like he is, like it was before the fall. And this is what he has promised he will do. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying. That is an amazing promise. No more pain. Former things will pass away. New things will come. And Jesus has told us when and how this will become a reality, when his gospel is preached to all nations, when his people have resolved to go to the ends of the earth, to all the unreached people groups, to the 29% that still have no access and share the truth of who Jesus is, giving these people their first opportunity to choose Jesus. My wife and I, we were confronted with the reality of this need um, in the Arab world when we uh, were small group leading at Sam Houston Chi Alpha. Um, like Daniel said, many missionaries would come and they would share, um, talk about Muslim nations and the need there. Um, even then, global communications was pretty far superior uh, than the previous decade. You know, we were on MySpace. Anybody know what MySpace is? There's like two, three people? Wow. Yeah. So we still had amazing capabilities to get the word of Christ out, and yet there were still so many people. One after another, these missionaries told these stories of Arab Muslims that they knew who they were hearing the story of Jesus for the first time. These Muslims, very first time they'd ever heard of who Jesus was. And many of these Muslims had had dreams and visions that led them to question Islam in the first place. And upon, only upon years of seeking out answers were they able to connect with missionaries that spoke their language and were willing to tell them the truth of Jesus. Now you may ask, why is it that Muslims are having dreams and visions? Anybody ever heard about Muslims having dreams and visions? It's happening a lot. Why? Why are they having dreams and visions that lead them to Jesus? Why aren't we having that in America? Why aren't my friends and I having dreams and visions? Well, my friends, the reason no one is having dreams and visions here, some are, but there's less. The reason that there's so few people having dreams and visions is because there are followers of Christ here. In the Arab world, in Muslim nations, in Hindu nations, in Buddhist nations, there are no Christians to tell them. So God does the work. He sends dreams and visions. It's our job to tell people about Jesus and disciple them. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus said this in Matthew 28 as he was about to leave the disciples and return to heaven. But you see, there's very little, if any, Christians in the Arab world to tell Muslims about Jesus to disciple them. But Jesus cares so much for them and for their eternities. 
that he is sending dreams and visions to them to draw them away from the falsehoods of Islam and into his light to give them a chance to choose him. We had the privilege of walking with a number of Muslims who have chosen to leave Islam and follow Jesus while we've been in Egypt. They laid down their lives, handing them over to Jesus. Many of them following Jesus literally meant just that, walking away from who they were, starting over, literally. You see, in their context, community is everything. Islamic society can only truly function if Islamic culture permeates every level of society. Let me unpack that a little bit. There's no separation between religion, between government, society, and community. It all is so perfectly intertwined. When someone leaves their faith, they leave everything. Many of our new believing friends left their husbands and wives, their children, their network, and connections. These are what promises them future employment, education, marriage, even travel. When they left Islam, they left all that. Most of them will never be able to return to these communities at the threat of violence or death. For many who choose to leave Islam and follow Jesus, it means they must be ready to die. One of my friends named Ahmed is an Egyptian who moved his family to Saudi Arabia for better work opportunities. And he lived there for many years before he eventually returned to Egypt. And while he was living in Saudi, he became extremely religious. Um, He required his wife and daughters, young daughters, to cover completely, wearing a niqab. Anybody ever heard of that? It's where you can only see through the eyelids. Um, Their family visited the Kaaba yearly, which is the giant black square rock that sits in the middle of Mecca. Um, Muslims are commanded to make the pilgrimage to the Kaaba at least once in their life, to circle around the Kaaba, chanting words from the Quran. This journey is called the Hajj. And they believe that this journey absolves a Muslim from all his previous sin. So they're supposed to do that once in their life at least. He did this numerous times. Ahmed became so religious during his years in Saudi that he told me that if ISIS would have been around at the time, he would have signed up, would have joined. Ahmed was constantly filled with anger towards anyone and anything that did not observe Islamic customs and law. One night, Ahmed went to bed angry, like most nights, and he had a dream where Jesus, um, it was a dream of Jesus. He didn't know it was Jesus at the time, but he heard these words in Arabic. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Read it again. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. You guys know, if you're familiar with your Bibles, that's from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Now, the Quran, um, now they were very similar to a verse in the Quran. Okay, so, but they weren't the same. The Quran says, He who shows no mercy to the people, Allah, the exalted and glorious, does not show mercy to him. I'll read it again. He who shows no mercy to the people, Allah, the exalted and glorious, does not show mercy to him. He knew this verse and he knew it well since he had memorized the entire Quran from when he was little. 
But he could not help but notice that that sentence from the dream had a twinge of hope. And the opposing verse from the Quran seemed to condemn. After weeks of the sentence stuck in his mind, he could no longer stand it. He had to find out what it was. He first went to his mosque and he sat with his religious teacher, which was called a sheikh. He told his sheikh about his dream and he talked to him about the sentence and how it made um, how he felt about the variant between the two sentences. His sheikh immediately and harshly rebuked him, telling him never to question the Quran. That the variant is blasphemous, the Quran is perfect, and every single letter is from heaven, just the way it's meant to be, and that his dream is from Satan. He walked away very angry, needless to say, more anger, but he could not shake the sentence. Finally, he typed the Arabic words into Google online. <laughs> At the time, most all Christian, uh, Arabic Christian websites were blocked in Saudi Arabia, but one site happened to get through the blockade. Beth Moore's website. Anybody ever heard of Beth Moore? <laughs> She's a woman's ministry leader in a, here in America. <laughs> and happened to have the option to be translated in Arabic. <laughs> it was there that he found the sentence exactly as it was in his dream. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. He was shocked. It was a Christian website. But he couldn't help himself from reading further. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is craziness, he thought. But he continued, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Tears filled his eyes out of anger. No one can be a child of God. That's blasphemous. Then he read, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Everything he was reading was in complete contrast to everything he knew from Islam. But his heart was bursting because he desired to know more about this man that spoke these words. He began reading everything available on Beth Moore's website, every teaching, every bit of scripture. Before long, he found himself staying up all night, every night, reading the words after his family had gone to sleep. After a few months, he was praying at the mosque, and he realized that while he was even performing his ritual prayers, you might have seen it, he was filled with joy like never before. Because every prayer he said was paired with thoughts of and devotion to Jesus, the Messiah. Then an unbelievable thought crossed into his mind. I believe I am a Christian. Instead of anger flooding his heart and mind as it would have months before, relief and peace flooded his heart and mind. And tears filled his eyes, not from anger, but because of joy. Shortly after this, Ahmed moved back to Cairo with his family. This move would have previously angered him <laughs> and been discouraging. But he was actually feeling excited about being back in Cairo where he could experience a little more religious freedom than he had experienced in Saudi. And maybe he, would, he could even bring his family to Christ. He began sharing the scriptures and stories little by little with his wife and children. 
Uh, being a devoted Muslim wife, she started listening to him with no objections and just nodded along as he was teaching. But she soon began to fear for her children. How would this be for them? How would their future look? What did this mean for their families? So one day, while Ahmed was teaching the family from the Gospels, she secretly recorded him on her phone and later sent the recordings to her extended family and his. The next day, Ahmed's family showed up at their apartment, dragged him outside, and began to beat him in the street. His wife's family arrived to pack all of their daughter's and children's things, including the furniture from the apartment. Ahmed's family, while restraining him after his beating, publicly announced to the entire community, which was watching, that Ahmed was a traitor to Islam, that he had shamed the faith, that he had shamed their family, and that he should not be associated with for any reason. He is to be considered dead. He is to be considered dead. Ahmed's father-in-law then announced that since Ahmed is now considered dead, that he and his daughter were no longer married, and that if Ahmed tried to contact his daughter and the children at any point, Ahmed would be just that, dead. Ahmed lost everything that day. He lost his family, his job, his apartment, his network and community. When Ahmed told Bethany and I this story as we rode together in the subway under the streets of Cairo, we cried with him. Now, this was years previous. And when he finished telling us the story, he looked into my eyes and said, I would endure it all again to be with Jesus. I would endure it all again to be with Jesus. You see, Jesus is glorious. Jesus is unlike anyone else, and he sets people free from their sins. When you encounter Jesus, things change. Now, the reality of the Arab world and stories like Ahmed, they stir us. They give us an emotional response, and our heart cries out, injustice, right? It's injustice. But the hard truth is, Jesus is asking the same of each of us. God wants us dead. To lay down our priorities, our opinions, our skills, our desires, our plans, even our own lives, in exchange for his life, his priorities, his strengths, his desires and plans. You see, he doesn't tell us to go die and stay dead. He promises a return of better, of his life. Now, let's take a look at an example from the Gospels, Matthew chapter 14. This is an example of a life laid down. If you have your Bibles, you can open and read along with me. Matthew chapter 14. Now, this is when Peter steps out of the boat, so... Find that spot and you can follow along. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone 
and the boat was already a considerable, considerable distance from land, and it was buffeted by waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Yeah, he went out to them walking on the lake. <laughs> like that's just a normal thing. You, just, you, know, you read it so casually, but he's like walking on water. Anyways, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost. Yeah, that's what I would think too, right? They said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were there in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. It's an awesome story. Now, we like to turn this story into kind of a kid's story, and we present it in pastel colors on the nursery wall, right? We paint it on there, and it's all pretty. And I'm not against teaching Bible stories to children. That's not what I'm saying. I think it's awesome. We absolutely should. There's so many great lessons and principles to teach children that are drawn from the Gospels. But I think an important point of the story gets missed when we have heard the story so many times as kids, and we neglect to put ourselves in the context. So let's put ourselves in this context a little bit um, and, and, di and dive in in a different way. Peter was a fisherman, okay? He was a fisherman, as were a few others in the boat, which means that they were experienced seamen. They had spent a lot of time on the ocean fishing or in the sea fishing. They knew how to handle a boat on the water, okay? And it's fair to, see, it's fair to say even while there's a storm. They probably knew how to handle a boat during a storm because they had probably been in storms <laughs> while they're fishing. The fact that the scripture says of Peter, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. It means that the storm must have been pretty big to cause Peter, an experienced fisherman, to be afraid. It must have been, I mean, it must have been a pretty big storm, <laughs> to say the least. Waves, dark skies, thunder. Wow, I'm in a boat. I'm gonna die, right? <laughs> now, although seamen, like fishermen, we can they can be experienced swimmers nowadays, especially. Um, back then, there weren't weekend leisure programs that Hebrews could enter their children into, in which they learned to swim, like we have nowadays. They didn't have that, okay? Um, yeah. In fact, even now, many simple villagers in the Arab world never get the opportunity to learn to swim. Many of my Egyptian friends do not know how to swim, adults. And we think, like, that's crazy, right? But it's pretty common. Um, maybe some learn to float on top of the water, you know, <laughs> but they hardly become strong swimmers, okay? This was most likely true of the disciples, including Peter. Probably wasn't a strong swimmer. Even the strongest of swimmers among fishermen would not desire to jump out of a boat during a storm they would rather lose the nets than lose their lives on the turbulent waters, okay? So that's where we are in this story. 
And the reality of this story is that when Peter called out to Jesus and said, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus replied, come. Jesus was inviting Peter to come and die. Come and die. Stepping out of the boat during that type of storm, the type that caused fishermen to be fearful, would usually mean plunging below the surface of the water to be swallowed by the waves over and over again until finally being drowned. That's what he was saying. Come on. Yep. Come on out. Step on this water. Because Peter knew he wasn't like Jesus, right? But seeing Jesus on the water and having him call out to Peter, come, sparked hope of survival in Peter. But not because Peter was able, because Jesus is. But before, staking, before Peter took a step out of that boat into the water, Peter had to resolve that even if he could not walk on the water, obedience to Jesus was worth death. Jesus told me to come. It's worth it. Right? Even if I die, I will obey Jesus. That if Jesus called out to him, come, and he sunk to the bottom, never to be seen again, obedience was worth that death. We, Christians, need to be people willing to lay down our lives to follow Jesus. Consider our life worth nothing, forfeit, if not to follow Jesus. What can we do apart from Jesus? Nothing. You see, Jesus... Like I said before with Ahmed, Jesus is glorious, and he changes things. He changes things in our lives. When we lay them down, he can pick us up. He can give us back the things he wants us to use for his glory. But we have to lay it all down. A famous name many of you may know as a huge American dairy competitor, I'm sure you've all Bought the milk. <laughs> it's also a name that's made specific, significant impact for the kingdom amongst Muslim peoples. You may not know that. At the age of seven, this son of the owners of a dairy empire gave his heart and life to serve Jesus during an R.A. Tory revival meeting, in a tent meeting, tent revival. He gave his life at seven years old. And when he was in boarding school, he was impacted by visiting preachers such as G. Campbell Morgan, Robert Speer, and Samuel Zwimmer. After listening to Zwimmer, this young man decided to give his life as a missionary to Muslims in China. Little did he know God had a very different plan for his life. He attended Yale for his undergraduate work, started a prayer meeting for the nations, which by his senior year included 1,000 out of the 1,300 students. He was regarded by his peers as someone who sought hard after Christ in his endeavors, but also daily and private. At 22 years old, he was named a trustee of Moody Bible College. He attended Princeton for graduate work, and while he was there, he taught Sunday school at a prominent Methodist church and gave thousands of dollars away to charities. The man was a stud, as we like to say. Um, before heading to China to start his life in missions amongst Chinese Muslims, in 1912, he traveled to Cairo, Egypt to learn Arabic and train under Samuel Zwimmer, who had a training center there that he started in 1912. After four months, when he was only 25 years old, William Whitting Borden, Borden Milk, 
died of spiral meningitis, and he was buried in Cairo. If you ever come to Cairo, you can see his grave. After Borden's death, they found written in his Bible, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. His life motto was, say yes to Jesus all the time. He left all his fortune to charity and missions organizations, many of which contribute to local ministries that are in Cairo today. The groundwork laid by him serves as the foundation for our labor in Cairo today. The hard work of tilling up the dry and barren ground began with Zwimmer. Borden's devotion and abandon added to that work. In Borden's body was a seed planted. Many men and women who came after Zwimmer and Borden benefited from the big rocks removed from the soil. And they continued to water it with their lives poured out as sacrifices. They were willing to live dead, to die for Christ daily. And now the seeds sown in the hard ground of Cairo are beginning to spring to life. All because of the few men and women who were determined to live dead. They counted their lives worth nothing if not to follow Jesus. They were devoted to loving Jesus, seeking the Father daily, being sensitive and obedient to his spirit. We want to be people like that. We want to be people who lay down all that we desire, all that we are, and be resurrected into something that Jesus makes beautiful and for his glory. Some may say that Borden's death was a waste, but we recognize that a life which has resolved to die to self and take up the life of Christ is enabled to be led by the Spirit. We are enabled to be led by the Spirit if we accept the life of Christ. This life can do far more in four months in Cairo than a life holding on to the world. Determined to serve self, void of the Spirit can do in a lifetime. Borden did more in four months than many do in a lifetime. When a missionary colleague was asked about Borden's life being cut short, he said, a life abandoned to Christ cannot be cut short. A life abandoned to Christ cannot be cut short. God wants you dead. A good dead. Not the ugly dead. Maybe it's ugly. We might ugly cry. But he wants us dead. He wants you to abandon your old self with all its selfish desires and aims and motivations. To cast aside even the things you would consider good to follow him. God is asking you to do this. Are you willing to give up your talents and your skills? And even your plans, if that's what he asks? Are you willing to nail them to the cross alongside all the bad? Because when we have resolved to die with Christ, all of us must die. We cannot hold on to pieces that we like. Or even pieces we think God can use. We must be wholly crucified, just as Christ was. Just as God desires. God cannot resurrect a life that isn't dead. A dead sacrifice, right? The hard news of the gospel is that we do not get access to the spirit of Christ unless we first die. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus sacrificed his life for us. For those that choose to make Jesus their savior, taking away their sins, their redeemer, 
giving them his spirit and their Lord, who will give them direction and guidance and strength. They will walk in freedom, clarity, and power. You will walk in freedom, in clarity, and power. That is good news. I want to finish tonight with a poem. It's written by George MacDonald. Some of you may know George MacDonald. He's a Scottish author, a poet, and a Christian minister. His influence and friendship and writings had profound influence on C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. He was even a character in The Great Divorce, if you've ever read that. Um, but he wrote a poem titled Obedience. It's one of my wife's favorite, and we read it when it gets tough in Cairo <laughs> because it, it hits home. I said, let me walk in the fields. He said, no, walk in the town. I said, there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers, but a crown. I said, but the skies are black. There's nothing but noise and din. And he swept as he sent back to me. There is more, he said. There is sin. I said, but the air is thick and fogs are veiling the sun. He answered, yet souls are sick and souls in the dark undone. I said, I shall miss the light and friends will miss me, they say. He answered, choose tonight if I am to miss you or they. I pleaded for this time be given. He said, is it hard to decide? I will not, it will not seem so hard in heaven to have followed the steps of your guide. I cast one look at the fields, then set my face to the town. He said, my child, do you yield? Will you leave the flowers for the crown? Then into his hand went mine, and into my heart he came, or into my heart came he. And I walk in a light divine, the path I had feared to see. Are you willing to live dead? Maybe this is your first time to be confronted with this reality of our responsibility in following Christ. Maybe it's new. That's okay. You're saying, whoa, whoa, slow down. Slow down. I just met Jesus and I need to know him better. Yes, get to know Jesus better. Abide in him. Dive into who he is. Spend time in the word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in the private place with him and get to know him. Ask questions during small group and learn all that you can. But you're not exempt from sharing the, share, from the shared responsibility of making Jesus known. No one even new believers, even if you just met Jesus, you're not exempt from the responsibility of making him known, okay? You can begin in even the smallest of ways to share what you do know about him, about what he has done in your life, about the things that you've learned about him, just small ways. Jesus expects us to learn to die to ourselves more and more every day and take on his life in exchange. Now, for those of you who are sitting here and feeling conviction, you're thinking of things that you're holding on to that don't glorify Jesus. Or maybe you're thinking that there's these things that I am good at that I'm not willing to lay down. Or I feel like I'm not sure if God wants me to use that, but I've always thought he did. You're realizing that you have put your heart on the altar as a sacrifice to the Lord but your limbs and your body are grasping 
at things along the way. You're not fully surrendered. Let me tell you, the promises of God will not return void. He has promised that if you surrender all, if you die to yourself and offer your life to him, he will return life to you. Life that is from the very source of life, Jesus, the creator of all things. He will fill you up to overflowing, full of joy. It will be better than anything you could ever do on your own. It will not always be easier. That I promise as well. But it will be better. Full of love, joy, 